Hi, I'm Laura. Hey, I'm Stefan, and you're listening to Attributed, a podcast library by Dream Data. The purpose of it is to store and share all the knowledge that we have gathered across Dream Data employees through our LinkedIn Lives, podcasts, and webinars. The typical topics you'll find here can be stuff like marketing, sales, B2B ads, operations, social selling, maybe. Hello, everybody. And uh, thanks for joining in for another uh, conversation about, yeah, this time B2B outbound tactics. Today, I have my very good friend, Lars, and you go by LJ nowadays. LJ nowadays. It's been LJ for quite some time, actually, but okay. Lars uh, works also well, Stefan. <laughs> I'm, I'm probably, probably a bit old school there. But for people who are listening in, we're going to talk about all things outbound today. Try to look at when it works, when it doesn't work, what's the typical mistakes, what is the secret sauce, <laughs> and stuff like that. So I hope to learn a lot more about it. If you're following me on, on LinkedIn, you once in a while see that I post something angry about the outbound uh, <laughs> things that I've been exposed to, which felt annoying. So we'll probably also find out later why that happens sometimes. But before getting into all the, the meat, Lars, maybe you can just kind of explain a bit about your background and what you do today at ScaleUp. Yes, sure. And uh, thank you for having me on, on the show, Stefan. It's interesting following you on LinkedIn, and especially since I've known you for some time and there's been some interesting dialogues uh, connected to, to sales and marketing. And as you know, I've been doubling down on sales for, for a long time, since the beginning of the 2000s, I would say. Uh, and uh, it's been a lot about outbound, building outbound machineries and getting them to work. And uh, I totally agree with you that uh, most outbound sales machineries, they don't work. They fail in already from in, in the design and then, of course, in the execution. So. I've been doing this with a couple of companies. Some of them has been more analog companies, uh, growing from zero people to several hundreds of people, from zero millions in revenue to several hundred millions in mm -hmm. revenue. And also lately then um, crossing over to the to more, to, to SaaS companies and uh, being inside the, some fast-growing companies like the Norwegian company Seneta, taking that to market, go-to-market strategy from no revenue to quite a bit of revenue and, and now a very strong position on, uh, in the global scene. And, Skeletex Squeeze is my company today, and that is, a, in a way, response to the challenges that I've been seeing over time, that uh, when it comes to designing this outbound machineries as a part of our holistic, uh, in a way, revenue engine, we don't treat that with the same, I would say, uh, respect and same professionalism as we do with marketing, customer success, product-led growth mechanisms, and so forth. So I've taken a stab on that and been at it for the better of five years since we started up in 2018 built what I would say is uh, our own dream team in terms of outbound, full stack uh, sales team, multinational. And then we we enter companies and support them in, in both the design of their machinery and the execution of it into the markets to prove the machine and then make sure that we build uh, everything in the companies so they be, become self-sustained and we can then renew ourselves when the machinery actually works. We'll be doing this... Uh, with over 150 companies the past four and a half years. So we've seen some data and some proof points and gather some know-how in this regard. So today we are, at this moment, at this very moment, I believe we are operating 30 companies in parallel, running about 8,000 sales processes in Europe, uh, mostly uh, at a monthly basis. That means close to 
you know, 80, 90,000 sales activities on a monthly basis, combination of names, meetings, phone calls, LinkedIn, whatever you want. Uh, so a lot to read across, a lot of learning, a lot of know-how, and uh, this is what I guess we're here to discuss, right? Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. And some, some pretty impressive numbers that I didn't actually realize that you've crossed that many customers by now. If you think about all these customers, who... Um... Is there anything the successful cases or the very successful cases have in common? Is there anything that where when sometimes it fails, what is it that what can go wrong? So like, let's start with the, the successful cases. What is kind of the commonalities that you see there? Yeah, there's often more often than not, there is some, there's some traction already. There's some initial customers like you, and I would say to the very, very successful cases that we're working with, there's, there's definitely a. An initial product market fit that uh, they, they they gained some some momentum and but they don't necessarily know how <laughs> it it is a little bit by accident or chance maybe organic over a few years and then uh, suddenly they would like to enter a new market or maybe roll out a new product in the market and they realize that shit we can't copy what we did because mm. we don't we don't really know how we did it yeah so when we then enter with our approach. We, we see like uh, the time to market is almost like nothing and the time to traction is almost like nothing. And it's definitely a, it's definitely the, a short way to success, let's put it like that, because they have some evidence before so we can build upon the evidence they already have. Yeah. And in the opposite side is, is definitely, yes, we're using alpha mechanisms as a way to, to also roll out and with first time companies into the market, but when the challenges might be sometimes that uh, if you don't have any internal competencies, you don't have necessarily <clears throat> the right kind of understanding when it comes to the strategic level of this, you don't understand how much effort it actually goes into it and, and the investment that you have to do. So you might be expecting results a bit too soon. That is, of course, something that is challenging when it comes to sales and marketing also. Yeah. And if you don't then respect the data and don't know how to read the data and you don't know how to lean upon the data, it might be a difficult, uh, it's an uphill battle, right? And uh, we are not, it's very hard to be successful if it's us or probably also if you were hired into one of these companies, it would be really, really tough to be successful as there's the levels of expectations is skewed, right? Yeah, I think, yeah, when I look, we, so today we are pretty much 100% inbound driven. And I think one of the reasons why that's the case is that like when we started out, I tried outbound, yep. but I'm not great at it. I don't know what success looks like. So I give up or I get impatient and go back to tactics I know instead, which is a kind of common B2B marketing tactics instead. Yep. So I think a lot of people, I could imagine a lot of people fail because they don't have the experience. They don't have the framework. They don't know what uh, success uh, should look like, when to give up and when to continue and, and all those things. Yeah, but I believe you're, you're spot on when it comes to that, right? And when it comes to marketing, it's, you know, there, I would say that there are well-established frameworks. And if you look upon also like the tech enablement of, of the field, it was definitely the first like part of, of the commercial field that was tech enabled first with whole, like whole market, market automation spiel, more process-based way of thinking, how to collect data, evidence and so forth. Yeah. It's definitely been involving a lot in, on the sales side too, but in sales, it's much more differences than, than it is similarities you know you take in a sales professional and then you take in another one and you will see that they operate in two different kind of mindset and frameworks and it's 
very little that is established when it comes to this fundamental infrastructure framework, uh, systematic way of thinking. And the ones that have it, it's typically people that has been a part of a successful journey or two, and then they move into another company and they bring the system thinking, but that is not accessible to everyone, right? It's very tricky to, you know, to get hold of. Yeah. I was trying to think when we say outbound and maybe also checking with you, we mean from the process of when people basically haven't heard about you until they start having sales meetings with you. Yes. That's kind of my perception of what outbound is. Then kind of when you look at that for, for a new uh, client customer of yours, kind of how do you then, what is the process or framework then that they need to get in place to, I guess you need to cut it into several dices so you can kind of slice it in different parts so you can tweak each part but what are those parts uh, typically that you want to understand yeah so so it's actually um, like if, if you look upon it it's almost like small micro services right and it's very similar to to the marketing game i would say and a lot of read across between up on sales and and also the whole growth marketing up on up on inbound marketing whatever you would like to call mm. it it's mainly, it's mainly two, three parts that you need to have control over. Uh, like if you look upon it, like on a, yeah. on a more broader perspective, and that's how do you position the product? And that basically means, you know, like how do we talk about the product to highlight the value of the product to the decision maker in question and make it as precise as possible in connection to the roles of the person so you can say that you have the sales persona or, or 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 the buyer persona and then it comes down to prioritization of the icp like uh, how do you then match these two things so you know that you can basically prioritize your prospects and the way you would like to communicate to this prospect so, so the whole like positional game is super important and in the positional game, we're diving deeply into a few components that I would like maybe like to highlight, and, and that's where it's probably is the most tricky for sales professionals to nail it. And that is being able to like you have two sides of the coin, right? And that is like being able to to lift up the value of a product or service yeah. at the same time arguing for the cost component of getting access <laughs> to that value, right? This yeah, is yeah, a challenging yeah. part, right? So we definitely dive into the strategic value of the product service and how to position that primarily and how do we then position it again differently in different market segments and also towards different roles. And yeah. how do we argue for the pricing? Around this, we build sales narratives and start to, to slice off messaging. And the messaging can be, you know, mails and how to conduct a phone call or what you write on LinkedIn versus how, what you write on or in the mail and so forth. So this we spend a lot of time on. And I would say that probably that's where it's the most similarities with marketing because you also do that work, that analytical work, diving into the product, looking at value propositions, unique selling points, what is motivating, what is demotivating, like all this work is the same, yeah. I would say. Right? And then when we, when we feel that, you know, we understand like how to communicate and how to get in touch, then it's all about the process part of it. So we have like the position part of it, and then it's the process part of it. And the process part of it is how do we then arrange our uh, work process space so we can actually handle uh, the amount of uh, work that that you need to be able to handle on an everyday basis for a long time. It's, yeah. it's all about being con consistent, right? And the processes, they have to support the different roles. So if, you, if you're if you doing outbound outreach, you, it would look differently than if you have an 
inbound salesperson, right? It's it's yeah. a combination of things. And then you have to know something about the local markets. And this uh, this is probably where it also fails for a lot of people trying to apply outbound sales. Like you try to copy the formula from US, where it's a much more similar setup across the market, while in Europe, it's not like if you would like to enter Norway, it's called mostly only and cold call is working really, really well. We have sometimes connection rates up to 40 to 60%, maybe 70% people are picking up the phone. Easy. Yeah. In Sweden, it's, uh, it's also pretty easy, but it's been dropping over the, over the past years. Going into Norway, Sweden, you need maybe six, seven, eight touch points to get hold of someone. And then you believe that, okay, then we can just do the same if we go to UK. But that, you know, that is not possible because UK, you can't go with the cold call first. You have to go with different kind of mechanisms and you have to have 20 to 30 touch points to get in hold of people. Go to Germany, you have to do mail first and then do a lot of stuff to get hold of them. And maybe it's 15 to 18 touch points to get hold of them. So mm. if you don't design your processes to this, well, you're going to fail. Yeah. Especially if you're in the Nordics because it's so easy to get in touch with people in the Nordics. And then you rig your machinery for that and go internationally. You give up too soon. Yeah. You give up after, after touch point number three, right? So you ne- never get hold of people. <laughs> and then it's about arranging that. So if you have like positioning, you have the process part. Then I would say that the performance part, how do you arrange your work day to day? You're data driven. You yeah. understand how to measure all your efforts every day and you know how to add new contacts every day and so forth. Basically being on, on top of your day to day business as a sales professional and then supporting that with a CRM system. So you never lose any opportunity, any data point, any feedback from uh, mails, phone calls and so forth and uh, stay true to that measure everything so you can change things when you see that it's working and double yeah. down on that and if it's not working stop it uh, when before it goes too far hmm. okay so what do we say so persona and messaging what did yeah, you call the next one structure positioning process and then performance to, performance yeah. how to organize around performance <clears throat> so there's two questions i'm sitting with now and you can choose which one you want to go with first I think you must have seen this a lot over the years as well. How do you keep a BDR happy, motivated, energized? Because it is a lot of work every day and your numbers matter. (laughs) So the more effort you put in, the more likely you are to to be successful. Maybe let's start with that and then I'll I'll save my next question for later. So, So first and foremost, I believe also that the BDR work is looked upon, it's handled differently in different co- companies and i think maybe that is is where it goes wrong that bdr work if done correctly it's more like i would say uh, a, a manual type of, of marketing work like it's, it's like being a detective the reason you are reaching out in volumes is not trying to convince everybody to buy your product you're actually doing disqualification work looking to get in touch with as much of the potential market as possible you find the 1% that is already yeah. there and a little bit mature to your product. And that's a much, 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 much friendlier way of doing sales than being an American BDR that try to just get into conversation and doing all your disqualification questions, right? So making it more into the investigative part and detective part, and also understanding that this is not a transitional game, transaction, sorry, game only, but it's about building up a long tail business of opportunities and keeping conversations with potential buyers at a much higher level than most BDRs do. 
most BDRs, they don't dare to go into C-level, VP-level discussions because they're not coached the right way and taught the way of value-based selling and how to actually bring up the strategic values of the product, yeah. go into dialogue with customers, look upon it as something exciting. And then your job is actually to then optimize that engine to get more output to them than uh, over time of the input that you put in, not only yeah. input-driven, right? I think so, to some degree, they're also they're the ambassadors of your brand as well. So if they behave mm -hmm. badly, that's the one impression that people get of your brand. So you need to, that's some fear that I could have sometimes also that if you have that, if you call it an, the American approach of just like machine gun firing messages all over the place without putting any thoughts into it, then I'd be fearing how that reflects on, on our brand as well. Yeah, and it will, it will reflect poorly, right? And, and I think, I believe that we need to, agree on, on at least uh, there's a few things that everyone can agree upon and regardless if you work with sales first approach marketing first approach if it's product led and whatnot it's it is still a human game like there is there is some level of human touch here that and we're still people that yeah. would like to be treated well respected Absolutely. and if you forget that well then um, business <laughs> is not going to go very well i believe so we have a question that I've just put up on the screen now. So Jonis, who is writing, uh, what's your take on using databases, text slash AI to source pre-qualified leads versus BDRs, SDRs doing the prospecting due diligence and qualifying leads for handover to BDMs, AEs? We are investigating this a lot, of course, like uh, with the new movement that has been, you know, for the past year, at least, like it's been opening up for a lot of opportunities. And I would say it's both. And that means that we are doing what we can when it comes to technology to offload work and pre-qualify and pre-check and pre-match data to get the, the, the highest qualitative data possible. Yeah. But, but then it comes to the point where when you are have, have a high-functioning BDR organization, their job is to keep bad business out of the pipeline. It's not the opposite. And to this day, AI is not going to be able to help you with that. And that's why it's important to have this interaction, human interaction. And that's what we see also is the main success factor. I guess we go and try to go into a dialogue with as possible potential buyers, but not with the intent to try to bring them into a sales process. No, we try to keep them out. So the AEs don't get overloaded with shitty deals and the pipeline is full of cluttered data. So... Definitely use, we use a lot of tools to offload work, but we don't remove the human component because we see that that is so important. And let me add one thing to that, because I think it's important though, we that would like to sell products and services, we are more, uh, you know, prone to look into all kinds of means of technology and so forth mm. to offload work and automate away uh, communication loops and so forth. But we have to remember that the buyers on the other side, there's a huge inertia when it comes to uh, decision makers. They don't give a fuck about AI, right? They, they don't care about these things. It's only us that try to make smarter decisions and force tooling upon our work processes. If you would like someone to buy an enterprise uh, solution or enterprise software that costs you a certain amount of, um, of euros or dollars a year, I don't think they would like to be automated away in the, in the decision making process right now. No, maybe maybe in the future. But yeah, there. good answer. I think one thing that I, I've found like during my career to to be very important that this is this kind of 
understanding which deal size you sell your product at and yes. what opportunities there is for go-to-market. Uh, amongst, amongst others, I think was Christoph Janssen, point nine that has this five ways to build a hundred million dollar company. I, I love those. I love those animals. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> me too. So when we talk about the type of outbound we talk about here, is there kind of a minimum threshold for, for the deal size that people should be aware about? And maybe you can just unfold why you need to understand kind of your deal size versus the cost of producing revenue and stuff like that. Yeah. So this is a really great question, actually. So the answer to that is in the long run, yes. But then I believe also we should visit one, one more thing. And that is, we talk about revenue, right? And, and that we are using different kinds of approaches to get revenue into our product or company, right? And it depends a lot on your business because there's different, I would say currency in, in, in when it comes to revenue, because users can be a currency, data can be a currency. Uh, and then of course, cash is another currency. So if you're going for the cash game and, and you're looking for that kind of currency, it's definitely you need to get to a certain level as soon as possible to make uh, your business sustainable. Because if you don't get uh, the right kind of mm. income uh, based on your effort, <clears throat> then it's going to be tricky. But when it comes to like um, lower value accounts and also free accounts that sometime in the future is going to become paid accounts, you can definitely use outbound as an instrument to roll it into the market, but you have to be very much aware of that. Then it's going to be a heavy investment to mm. map out that market. It's very quick. It's very fast to get distribution to outbound, but it's very expensive, right? And that points to sustainability part of it. Like if your customer acquisition cost up towards the, uh, the ratio up towards the lifetime value doesn't make sense, then you will get in trouble if you're at least running the VC game. Mm. But if you're not running the VC game, then actually the threshold is much, much lower. I would say that between uh, three to 5,000 euros, like a yearly um, uh, ARR, sorry, you can definitely defend an outbound strategy, but yeah. it will not be defended in, in the VC game. There you have to be maybe up towards 20, 25,000 euros, yeah. 15 at the minimum, if you yeah. can say it like that, yeah. Cool. I think that's it's good to know that rule of thumb that if if you're below five thousand euros per year in revenue, it, you have to think through whether the math uh, will make sense at the end of the day. The reason why I'm mentioning it is because you should. It really matters if you want to have a sustainable business that yes. that the cost of acquiring new customers makes sense. And to give some opposite examples, if your average deal value is a hundred dollars per year. Then you can't have the world's greatest salesperson, which is going to be very expensive, sitting there and selling these $100 deals because he or she can simply not produce enough revenue to defend their own salary. That's so true. you need to probably go down a product-led path where you know you yeah. do SEO or cheap ads and there's no human touch when people come to your website and, and so forth. Yes. Whereas if the deal size is very large and you can just produce a few meetings every month and then your people will be very happy about uh, all the maths we see. Yeah. And uh, also I, I would say that, you know, I think it also is about the ratio. So I would, I would argue that in all situations, except when you get to down to a few dollars or a few hundred dollars on, a, on like a yearly recurring revenue, then or annual recurring revenue, is definitely a combination of everything, right? So, but the weight ratio is going to be tilted heavily towards marketing and product-led uh, uh, 
approach, the lower, uh, like you need to be weight heavily to watch those kind of efforts. And the higher value of the accounts, the more you can definitely uh, tilt it towards uh, sales and you can support it with, uh, with uh, the other kind of efforts. But it's always a combination of these kind of mechanisms and not only one or the other in my Absolutely, opinion. yeah. So Jake has a question which I think is just spot on to what you do at ScaleUp, but we'll see. Advice for someone who has joined a mid-sized ScaleUp, over 30 yeah. million, million ARR, who have only ever done inbound. Jake has been brought in to design the outbound process for EMEA, which he's yeah. in the middle of. Where did Jake go from here? Yeah, so... Uh... That's an interesting situation. We have just been through some, a similar process actually with another, with a customer of, of ours that is uh, similar size. And the main challenge with these kind of companies and these kind of situations is that they believe that they have everything figured out. So then coming in there and de deciding mm. it and get, managing expectations and internal stakeholders <clears throat> is a bit tricky. Yeah. But I would definitely say that now also, the one thing that is going to also dictate is going to be in the market you're pointing towards, how many potential customers are there in that market for you? Because mm. if you're, of course, working very high-level accounts and it's very account-based, then you have to have a different approach than if you have a lot of potential customers and you can actually move a little bit closer to the transaction base. So that will influence it. And if you have enough customers, and that means if you have a couple of thousand potential customers and you can actually go for it, my way of designing things and our way of designing things is asking ourselves, how fast can we get in touch with as many as possible to figure out who is ready to buy what we have now instead to try to sell it to everyone mm. it's almost like a market mapping mechanism that's number one and the second one and that means that your edrs have to be working very efficiently and have to handling hundreds of new accounts every month without dropping the ball and and, and losing the quality and the second one is then you have to take into regards individual uh, differences in the countries that you, you do uh, think about the geographies and it's hugely different ways of approaching these geographies when it comes to uh, what kind of channel you use. If you use mail first, uh, LinkedIn first, phone, combination of the, them all, uh, yeah. and also the number of touch points is hugely different. So don't give up if you enter uh, a country where, where the average is 25 touch points to get through and, and you think that you failed at 10 because you didn't, right? You have to rig the machine for the market and not, yeah. for, not for the global, in a way, benchmark uh, that is out there, right? But I think in, in general, if, if you're that big a company now, you should have what you talked about in the beginning, an ability to really define the persona that uh, is the perfect persona. And you probably even have customers where you can validate the messaging that you plan on uh, putting out. So I think there's a lot of, and you probably have success cases on the website. You have a real well-running retargeting engine. If you push people to your website, they see a lot of pretty ads after they go off the website. So there must be a component of really utilizing everything the company already knows before heading out to enter the market. Yeah. And I think, and, and that is really, that's a really good point, Stefan. Like if you have that size of a company, you definitely know a lot about the customer and the communication. So the main battle in this situation is going to be on the, again, outreach processes. Actually, so you design those processes so they actually allow for reaching out in the scale that you're supposed to. And again, I strongly believe that any BDR organization or any organization that's going to get some traction, you have to have a strong disqualification mindset. You don't qualify leads, you disqualify leads. 
yeah. and bring only in that the ones that are that are in 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 a situation that they are can move within two to three months, if not, or depending, of course, on the said cycles and the size, but the indication should still be two to three months. If not, then you're going to lose uh, lose lose the game. Yeah, I think a classic. Uh, if we just change gear a little bit. When do the BDR do a handover to an account executive? Is it do the BDR go kind of full funnel, or I guess this, you're gonna say something about it? Depends what kind of, but what typically do you see kind of is the best process here? You can say that yes, it depends, but but really not because what we see is that the ones that, if you think about that, the BDR and that function, I think that's one of the most important functions to nail, and it's one of the most tricky functions to nail because it's looked upon as a in some companies at a low level yeah, position, yeah. but it's really it's not. It's it's probably the most important uh, position to to nail, and and their job is basically to keep a lot of communication strings prime business uh, or decision makers and decision maker units and then bring in that i would say sql uh, into to meet an account executive on the okay. other side yeah. to verify so yeah. all the way to it could be several discovery calls it could be also discovery okay. me- meetings if you if you if you are in a situation where you have to have maybe a, a briefer meeting where you introduce some stuff so the format of what you're doing is not so important it is what is the whole goal of it and that is like at some point you have a business opportunity and you know it's a good one then you bring in the account executive to verify whether or not that's a good opportunity and they can take it over and bring it in to a sales process yeah okay i was just sitting and thinking are you able by now to spot a good bdr (laughs) yes so what's a good bdr in uh, kind of in your opinion it's a lot about like so we in our organization of course we have a lot of BDRs, and they are both uh, Nordic and and also uh, European and uh, from UK and so forth. So it's different nationalities. That is important because uh, language and culture it, it actually matters when it comes to outbound a lot more than people uh, would imagine. So that's that's one thing that we should, as far as possible, strive towards uh, language language and culture match. So Second, like the ability to write in the language of the market. Yes, that is one thing, but also I believe that uh, most BDRs, they have to go into some kind of conversation where they have a phone call or actually have a small yeah. demo discovery call. And even though I speak English, you know, I don't necessarily understand all the unwritten silent language in the UK. So I'm definitely going to be outperformed by anyone that mm-hmm. actually have this uh, natural uh, UK cultural uh, fit, right? So yeah. we are very conscious about that. That's number one. Secondly... It's a lot about being able to, you know, when we do interviews, everything like that, it's a lot about uh, being able to carry a conversation and actually piece information and put it into a context. So it's not about pitching. It's not about being uh, uh, the best kind of, uh, in a way, salesy person. It's about you and me talking together. Yeah. You talk to me and you're, you you can actually feel that I can I can piece together what you're saying in my mind and actually reflect it back to you so we can keep a conversation going. This is the most important skill set. And this is the only way to find this is actually not to go into an interview setting, but sit down, talk with the person, and then you see what happens. And yeah. suddenly you're going to have BDRs that you didn't actually believe that you were looking for because you were CV chasing instead of actually opening up for the people that were natural communicators. And mm. those are the most successful ones, the natural communicators. Huh. People you can have a cup of coffee or a beer with, and it feels relatively Good. natural. 
in our company, there's a very strong, like we have very little turnover in our company. Uh, mm-hmm. And we had for, since we started. And that, I think one of the reasons of that is that we have been recruiting very mindfully when it comes to the peoples like that have ability to communicate and relate to other people. Yeah. So they easily become friends too. So that means that you get a very friendship culture in your company. And that's a very good culture to have if you build a sales organization. Yeah. Competition is good, but friendship is much stronger. Yeah. And I think on the bad days where you just get no's, it's nice to, to go have lunch with people who can then cheer you up and you can have fun about the amount of no's you got, uh, for example. Yeah. And uh, sometimes uh, you just need someone to have a coffee with because the, all the no's is, is bringing you down or yeah. maybe you need to, need to grab a beer, right? So but national communicators. And uh, I have been, since the first time I started recruiting back in the two, early 2000s, I, there was some Swedes that actually got me onto this. And if yeah. I probably recruited this, I probably would go for CVs, but they just pointed towards saying like, no, CVs we don't do. We talk to people and we figure out who can carry a conversation. Yeah. And that has been the main uh, driving <laughs> mechanism for us is I've been recruiting hundreds of people. And right now, nice. I would say that some of our salespeople, they are not, they're not coming from any kind of business related uh, industry. They are uh, coming from everywhere else. Yeah. Uh, backgrounds from something that is not related to business. So some of them are uneducated Yeah, and they are great, amazing people. Yeah. That's super interesting. I think that's a very good point. Okay, um, last question from my side uh, before we finish that could kind of be nice to take away is kind of, is there some rule of thumbs or some benchmarks that like you think works across industries? Like how many meetings should a BDR be able to, for example, produce per month? And I think that is a question I'm unsure of. What is the expectations? You Say you hire somebody to do this outbound work. What is a, like a realistic target of meetings that they can uh, generate yeah. for you? Yeah. So this is uh, also a very great question. And I would say that here is also where it goes wrong for a lot of companies. A lot of companies and a lot of, a lot of organizations, they are hunting the output rather than the input. So I would say that what you should actually be regulating is the input. And that is how many accounts should an account or a SDR, BDR be able to, to handle communication with in parallel. And that is, as a rule of thumb, if it's not, of course, very account-based or very enterprise, because then it's a little bit more complex. Let's say that if it's very, very enterprise, very, very high value accounts, and there's a few companies out there, it could be as little as actually 30 to 50 to 100 unique communication strings, unique prospects that you handle mm. in parallel. Okay. If, if it is a larger market, then a more normal kind of situation where you work SME and there's a, there's a lot of potential customers, a BDR should be able to handle, I would say like uh, four to 600 unique outbound processes a month without having any kind of pressure, nothing that is destroying the quality. And if you're able to handle that, you can expect the output as much as 20 to 30 extremely high quality business opportunities in some segment and in other segments, it's segment dependent. It could be as little as four yeah. to six. Yeah. So the range of this is very dependent on the product and the market you're going to. So we have customers where we produce, uh, again, uh, 20, 30 business opportunities a month of very, very high quality. And yeah. then we have other customers that we are putting in the same kind of effort, but we are producing four to six. And yeah. they're like super happy because <laughs> the, you know, the average uh, contract value is so high. Right? Yeah, I think that's very interesting. So it's basically in the CRM, uh, ABDR owns 
200, 300, 400 accounts. And then the task is really to to continuously have conversations with all the main stakeholders in, in the, inside these accounts. Yeah, and you add, but also what you do is that you, because basically you should look upon it as a market, uh, also market mapping function. So you, you don't have two to 300 unique accounts and stop there. You basically make sure that as long as your market is, is of, a, of, a, of a certain size, that you run communication strings with these couple of hundred accounts, 80% of them, you maybe you don't get hold of. That means that you find another contact person in that same company, and then you start initiate next month, initiate the new conversation string. Mm-hmm. The 20% that you get hold of, you then nurture the communication and keep, keep track of it manually and in your CRM system. And every month you make sure that you, so it's about almost like net, net retention, right? So you top up. Mm. So you always have active communication strings. It's not only about maintaining a communication pool. It's active, new, fresh communication strings that have to be at that uh, that amount. Interesting. Very then cool. the machine starts working, and you get the, <laughs> what you do get, uh, Stefan. What is very interesting, if you think about it, you chew through maybe one thousand, two thousand potential prospects within the period of three to six months. And if you do this the right way, not aggressively, you you are very high quality communication. Maybe you get hold of ten percent of them. Right, but mm-hmm. at the same time, you start harvesting all this contact information, data points with all the other ones, so you can then reach out again and try to get hold of them every every three to six months, and suddenly you have your own prospecting base that you own, which yeah. is seriously your goal that you can just rework and rework and rework, right? And uh, that's the way you get the long term business going. Right? There's no doubt about your your passion on uh, on this uh, this tactic. It works. It works. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, that, that's very good. Uh, okay. Olina has one last question and then we'll, we'll round it off. Do you have any advice for a system or approach for BDR to nurture regularly outbounding relationships before pushing people into their pipeline too early in the process? Yes. So one thing is you have to separate between the process of getting hold of people because that's typically the sequential process where you just do mails and phone calls and stuff in sequence and then when you get hold of people and they actually get them in a dialogue you should lean upon some kind of framework to qualify disqualify that business opportunity and there's several of them out there but it's some of them are more i would say more dynamic and 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 a better fit for companies in the go-to-market phase and i would i would like to mention two actually and that is uh, the spice framework from winning by design which is actually really good spice uh, framework spice okay uh, it's situation like uh, you have to map out the situation they're in uh, yeah. do they have pain points what kind of impact is our product uh, having uh, is there some critical events that can move them forward pretty soon and then decision maker uh, do we have the decision makers in the room yeah. so basically what we do is that we check those boxes and say like hey do you check these boxes now or no you you didn't check these boxes well, then you're yeah. not ready for us right now. And then you have the NEAT framework, which is a little bit simpler. And it's a, like a, in a new version of BANT framework. Okay. Uh, but the NEAT framework and the, and the SPICE framework, they're really good frameworks used to score potential uh, sales uh, opportunities. Yeah. And then the BDR is responsible to do that scoring. And if there is not, uh, in the beginning, it's just yes and no, maybe. Mm. After some time, you can use lead scoring mechanisms that you do in the marketing, so you can score them on a scale. 
And if they're not matching up to that scoring, you don't let them in. Then you wait, and then you call yeah. them back and you say, "Hey, what is going on? Uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, anything changed?" You know, and that's just normal, uh, logical way of approaching people. Yeah? Uh, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I think the the worst thing sales or like account executives know is when they're fed a lot of low quality stuff that then they have to basically waste their time on these accounts that they're never gonna win anyway. Yeah, and it, and it destroys like for for someone like you then that is responsible for the commerciality in your business. It it destroys your pipeline because you get you get the cluttered data, and you don't want to have shitty data and shitty opportunities in your pipeline because you're gonna make wrong decisions. You need really high quality data in. So I believe the the best way of like if you don't work with someone like us or or work with someone that knows what they're doing in terms of designing these processes, yeah. the easiest way to think about it is that. BDRing is a manual, more human-centric way of doing marketing, because the content you put out, you just put the content out through mails and phone calls instead of doing it through some other content, mm. and you are in a way scoring them through putting up thresholds, yeah. and you don't let them in to the product until they are ready in a way to actually do that action that that you're looking for. You don't let them into the pipeline until they're ready. That is also a challenge for businesses in the early stage. Because of course everyone wants to sell, and it actually fucks with the mindset. Don't sell to the ones that you would like to have, but actually try to find the ones that would like to have you. That yeah. is actually the main uh, main point of album. <laughs> Could repeat that one more time, last. That was a good one. <laughs> Don't try to sell to the customers you would like to have, but try to identify and find the customers that would like to have you. Right. Mm, pretty nice. Pretty nice. Pretty nice. Great, great word, Lars. Okay, let's uh, let's end it here. I really enjoyed the the conversation, Lars, and uh, I think I wish I could hire somebody like you to run our outbound efforts. You can, you can, because <laughs> you, you know where to call. You have my phone number. <laughs> yeah, maybe that's actually a good uh, plug for just saying, like, if people do want to to talk more with you, what what should they do? Yeah. So, and I think this is also important to say, if you would like to reach out and have, have a chat about like continuous chat about this, I think, I believe that most people and companies that have been in touch with us are not companies and, and, and people that we necessarily work with, because we are really serious about sharing this know-how. So just add me on LinkedIn and just send me a message if you have questions. And we're happy to share like insights without any like push on us having a business relationship. Just and what is your, uh, what is the website last also, if people just want to go yeah. read more? The website is uh, scaleupxq, uh, that means scaleupxq.com. And um, my full name is LJ Björkevold. And so you will <laughs> find, find me on LinkedIn and uh, that is also a way to go. Good stuff. And I can always recommend last for a coffee and or beer as well. Thank you. It was really nice seeing you again. Thank you. We hope you like listening to us. Subscribe to our podcast and the ones that we have been guests on. And if you have any feedback for us, uh, just do let us know. And should there be a guest that you think we should be talking to, then like pitch us. We're looking forward to seeing you.